0: So, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we're continuing in our series that we're calling More Than a Story, working through some of the Old Testament stuff. Nobody here in this room will probably recognize the name Abdul Basar Wasiki. And the reason you don't want to recognize the name is because hardly anybody's ever heard of him. He was actually an Olympian in 1996, he was the only athlete from the country of Afghanistan, which means he walked in by himself with his nation's flag. He was a marathoner. Two days before the race, he pulled a thigh muscle, pulled it. So he couldn't actually run, but he made the decision. He traveled all that way. And so he was going to go and try and compete anyway. He finished more than an hour and a half behind the guy who finished in front of him. And even though he, he was racing towards as best he could or limping towards the Olympic venue, he thought it's the Olympics. Surely somebody will be there to welcome me. And when he crossed the finish line, the only people who were there were the people who were tearing down the marathon ending place in the ceremony or within the venue so they could prepare for the closing ceremonies. So essentially, he crossed the line alone. And Abdul Basir Wasiki, in his own words, said, my Olympic experience was a dismal failure. Now, the deal is, it's okay for us to talk about that, right? In fact, we have no problem talking about failure as long as it's somebody else's failure and not ours, Right? And we have no problem assigning failure to this guy or that guy or this lady or that lady. Just as long as we don't talk about our failures, then we seem to be completely okay with that. And if you watch the Olympics, you saw this. You saw the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But as soon as I start talking about your failure, there's something in your brain that goes back to second grade when you're sitting in your little desk and your teacher came by and put a spelling test in front of you. And at the top of it was a great big red F with a circle around it. And it's just like, ah, I don't even want to go back and talk about that kind of failure stuff. Some of you probably won't be able to identify the picture that I'm going to show you back here on the screen. If I could see my first picture, I mean, it just looks like a big pile of rocks and a little trickle of water and there's a city in the background. Most of you would look at that for a really, really long time and not be able to identify it. Because anybody tell me what it actually is? It's Niagara Falls in 1962. In 1962, the falls were failing. They were literally collapsing underneath the force of the water. So they diverted, first time in history, diverted the water around the falls so they could put them back together again. They had to reinforce all the rock underneath of that just simply so that it didn't fail. And that, I think, is a great picture for us of how we feel when we look at our own failures because we feel kind of dry and empty and it's not very inspiring. And some of you are like, Grant, just put the water back because it really is beautiful when everything's flowing right. So let me just do that. Let me show you a picture. That you feel better? Doesn't that feel better? I mean, failure is a difficult thing to talk about, but what what if I told you that God actually wanted you to become a world-class failure? What if I told you that some failures were good? What if I told you that God likes failure in the proper context? Because in Daniel chapter three, we meet three guys who were world-class failures and God absolutely adored them. Okay, so if you've got your Bible or you wanna open your app or grab your outline, Daniel chapter three, starting at verse one, the Bible says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So it's just a big gold stick, all right? Set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I mean, that's some directive, right? Here's what the king says. When the band fires up, you will fall down and worship the big gold stick that I stuck in the middle of the plane. And that's what happens. The music plays and everybody drops to their face and worships the gold stick because they don't wanna die. Except for three young Hebrew rebels who are like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I only bow and worship the God of heaven, the God of Israel. I'm not worshiping some stick, sorry. This is not the way this is going to go. Their names are famous, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I put them in your outline and listed them as world-class failures. Now, some of you would question, why would we call them that? Well, let me explain it to you. I would call them world-class failures because number one in your outline is they failed to bow down to cultural norms. Verse seven says this, that all of these people, when the music starts, they actually hit the ground. The end of verse seven says, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And I mean, scripture says the king is absolutely ecstatic. He says, bow down. People get with the program and bow down until three astro- or a group of astrologers shows up and said, there's three Hebrew guys that are not following your program. In verse 12, the news says this, but there's some Jews whom you've set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. And scripture says the king is furious. I mean, how dare they not bow? I said bow. Everybody's supposed to bow. Their knee is supposed to be bent. And this is where this story gets really, really personal. Because the truth is, I bow my knee all the time to things that are not God. And if you were honest, and we had a moment, you'd say exactly the same thing. See, the world keeps calling us to conform to the standards that they have. And we do it. We actually start chasing things that the world says are important. And every time we do it, our knee gets bowed. We chase wealth and popularity and success and and, and we chase titles and corner offices because we just want to have that kind of esteem built into our lives. We chase it all the time. And the reality is this, anytime we place anything, anything ahead of God in our lives, we're bowing our knee. And Paul shows up and he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome and he says this to them, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of the standards of this world. This is what he's saying, saying if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to live differently. You need to talk differently, act differently. You need to be married differently. You need to date differently. You need to work differently. You need to drive differently. You're supposed to do everything differently because we don't follow the patterns and the standards of the world. Paul's saying don't go with the crowd. Don't get wrapped up in pursuing what the world says to pursue because it's going to end up with you conforming and every time you conform you're bending your knee. You know, this happens every single August. I make promises about how this year I'm going to do it different. I'm not going to get sucked into the God of busyness. I'm not going to overload my schedule. I'm not going to say, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. And just over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've kind of, you know, intonated those kinds of promises to my wife and to my assistant, Diane, and they both gave me exactly the same look. It's like, Because they've seen it before. They've seen it before. I make promises. I'm not going to get sucked into worshiping the God of my calendar this year. And then the requests start coming. And pretty soon it's like, well, yeah, well I can do that. I, and I could add that. And sure, I'll be at that meeting on time. And I don't want to disappoint those people. So I better say yes to this. And Okay, I can do this. And 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 the more I say, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. All of a sudden, I get in the middle of October. And I'm bowing at the idol of Google Calendar. And my phone is going off in my pocket. And I twitch every time. And sometimes I reach for it. And it's not even there, but I can still feel it. Don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? Nod your head, yeah, ah, right? And then I get frustrated, and I'm just like, God, I did it again. I did it again. And even though I know this statement to be true, because I've told you guys this, you've heard it from me, right? If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, busy. So we start making concessions. We start cheating on the wrong end. We put a little bit more time in at work in our rush to be successful. We think we can cheat at home. We think we can cheat with our kids. We think we can cheat with our wife. And as pastors, we make exceptions because it's like, yeah, but I'm out there. I'm working on God's stuff. And in reality, here's what we're doing. We're trying to make a deal that God won't make. God won't let you make that deal. Bob Pierce was the president of World Vision. He logged more air miles than you and I could ever dream of in his pursuit of feeding the starving children of the world. I mean, how much more noble can you get than that? In his own words, Bob said that he made a deal with God. I will go out and feed the starving children of the world and you need to look after my children at home. That's a deal God won't make, just so we're clear. And in his own words, he paints out the tragedy While Bob was out saving the world, his own daughter, Sharon, took her own life. Because he got sucked into the God of busyness. He got sucked into the God of being driven. Here's my question. What are you bending your knee to? And every one of us, whether we're wearing a microphone right now or not, we bend our knee to something. And if you're wondering what are the idols in your life, let me just tell you. If you give me your financial records and your calendar, I can tell you what your God is. Because where your talent, where your treasure, and where your time goes, that's your God. That's the reality of life. What are you bending your knee to? I love the fact these three guys are like, yeah, we're not going to bow to your idol. Sorry, man. You may be the king over Babylon, but I'm not bowing to your golden stick, and I'm most certainly not bowing to you. And in that moment, they become world-class failures. They failed to conform, and they also became God-class success stories. Why else would we call them failures? Number two, because they failed to compromise in the face of pressure. Verse fifteen says, basically, okay, so when the band fires up, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So they don't fall the first time, so Nebuchadnezzar calls the three young men over and says, Look, gonna give you a second opportunity to bow down. And if you don't, you're dead. So I want you to make this decision very well. I mean, you can just picture this arrogant king. If you go down, very good. We all go home happy. But if you don't, you're going to be dead. In fact, the Bible says that, that, I mean, talk about the king of overkill in this moment. As if the furnace isn't hot enough, he orders it to be fired up seven times hotter than it's ever been, been fired up before. And that's what he faces them with. Bow your knee or die. Choose right now. We've all faced situations where we get that pressure, right? Conform or pay a price. Be a part of the group or stand alone. It's a tough choice to make. Whether we're going to conform to what everybody else is doing or whether we're going to stand tall in the face of adversity, even if it means paying the high price of being alone. Let's just be honest. Standing alone is not easy, is it? Middle school student, in a couple weeks, you're going back to school. If you love and follow Jesus, I promise you at some point, you'll probably have to stand alone. High school and college students, you're going back into those classes. Western students, Wacom students, you're going to stand in some of those philosophy classes and they're going to tell you straight out, you're an idiot to believe in a God that you can't see. And in that moment, you've got a decision to make. You're going to conform and be like everybody else or you're going to stand tall and say, you can call me an idiot if you want to. God doesn't call me an idiot. You're going to have to make that decision. Some of you stand at work alone. Some of you stand in your family alone. And there's so much pressure there. The great theologian Bill Cosby once said this. (laughs) He said, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. Sometimes you've got to stand alone alone. And I want you to notice something. Standing alone is unbelievably difficult, but you need to notice that it's not just a group of one, it's actually a group of three, a small group of three. And when the pressure's on, when people are there to hold you up, that's a good thing. And I just tipped my hand to exactly where we're going this fall, okay? Why else would we call them world-class failures? Because number three, they fail to underestimate God. So they're standing in front of the furnace, Here's my option. Conform or die. It's as simple as that. Verse 16 tells us what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. Underline those words. The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. I love this. These young men had a big faith in a big God. They make a bold statement. The God we serve is able. Do you believe that? I'll tell you what. I can tell whether or not you believe your God is able by the size of your prayers. And you can tell exactly the same thing by mine. If you pray big God-sized prayers that aren't humanly possible, that's big faith. And these guys are like, we're praying that God's going to step in. We think he's bigger than you are. In fact, we think that the God of heaven and the God of earth is bigger than the God of Babylon, the king of Babylon. So we're going to say it again. We will not bow our knee, not to your stick, and most certainly not to you. I mean, I love the passion that these guys have. They're praying big prayers. They're saying bold things, and I'm sure in the back of their mind, they're praying big prayers. God, a little help would be nice. That's a hot furnace right there. And I can feel it from here. I need a little intervention. What are you praying for, church? I mean, we get so lulled into these little, tiny, easy, convenient prayers. God, keep me safe today on the way to work. Really? Put your seatbelt on, you know? Oh, God, help little Johnny not fall off of his bike. You know, maybe Johnny needs to fall off his bike. Maybe then you'll get rid of the training wheels too. I mean, seriously? When was the last time you had a list of miracles that God, I mean, if God doesn't answer this, there is no other hope. So over the years in my little prayer journals, I've had as few as three. Right now, I'm praying for nine miracles. Nine situations that involve people that I love. There is no other hope unless God intervenes. Simple as that. So I'm praying big things. Can I share one of them with you? I want you to write a name down on your outline because he's actually your brother in Christ. He goes to this church. I want you to write down the name Rodney. Okay? I've known Rodney for 12 years. We've been through a lot together. I try to have his back. I know he always has mine. He's walked through some deep, 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 dark stuff. But God's been pulling him out into the light. And a couple of weeks ago, saw him after church. He told me he's got stage two pancreatic cancer. So we did, in faith, what the Bible tells us to do. According to James 5, we had him come in. We gathered the elders of the church together. We anointed him with oil, and we prayed the prayer of faith, believing that the God we serve is able to beat that cancer. So we joined together and pray. I'm asking you, as his faith family... To pray for Rodney until you hear any different, okay? I'm just asking you, pray for him. Someday it may be you that we're gonna be praying for. But but we hold on to it with faith, right? Because cancer sounds like a really big deal, but in the light of the God we serve as Abel, it's not that big of a deal. Because I don't know about you, but I serve a God that can cure cancer. Amen? I mean, that's the hope that we hold on to every single day. We hold on to the fact that God said he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or even imagine. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are staring down King Nebuchadnezzar's furnace and this is what they're saying. The God we serve is able to rescue us. That's a big, bold prayer and statement right there. Let's keep moving because the next one's tied to it. Why are these guys world-class failures? Because number four, they failed to choose the easy approach to faith. Verse 17 and 18. I love this. Here it comes. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, that's the three guys talking. The God we serve is able to save us from it. And he'll rescue us from your hand, O king. Here's verse 18. Underline these next five or six words. But even if he does not. But even if he does not. We want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Basically, they're saying this. I'd rather be dead than bow my knee to your stick. I love that passion in that moment. But get those words. But even if he does not, that's one of the greatest definitions of faith you'll find in your whole Bible. But even if he does not, even if he does not, these guys are saying, no matter how this goes down, we're still not going to, I mean, you're not even going to be able to make that little pile of embers bow down to that gold stick. You can torch us if you want to. We will not bow. Now, let's just be honest, okay? This side is really easy, right? The God we serve is able to, "Woohoo!" amen, praise God, preach it, pastor. Yes, and I love this part over here. I mean, I'll lead the cheer on that one. The God we serve is able. I do great in this one. When I step over here, but even if he does not, it's like, ah, I don't know about that. Because if he doesn't, I'm going to get ticked. If he doesn't, I'm going to be upset because obviously he doesn't love me very much when I bring him my grocery list and he doesn't just check off the boxes and fill in the blanks. In fact, very often, if I get a no or a wait, it's like, fine then. I'm going to go find my own gold stick. It's kind of the way it works, isn't it? I want you to know this. In fact, you don't get anything else this weekend. Please take this with you. Real faith... Loves and trusts no matter what the answer is. Let me say that again. Real faith loves and trusts no matter what the answer is. I love these guys. They failed to take the easy way out. They're saying, I'm asking God for a miracle. But even if he says no, I'm still not going to bow to this stupid gold stick. In every one of these stories, we've been looking to find Jesus. Jesus. And in Daniel chapter three, you don't need to look any further than verse 25 to find Jesus. So get this picture. Nebuchadnezzar binds the three Hebrew guys, orders a group of men to take them and throw them into the furnace. The Bible says the furnace is actually so hot, the guys who throw them in die from the heat. They get launched inside of this furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes to get a front row seat to make sure that these three malcontents really get what they deserve. And he's actually, just picture him trying to look in amongst the flames to make sure that everything that he wanted to happen is happening. Verse 25 says this. Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Okay, let me do the math for you. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Abednego. I said, in three. There are now four. And then he describes them. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. When was the last time you threw a steak on the grill, went in the house, came back out, opened the lid, and the steak was doing laps around your grill? Just like, hey, how you doing? This is great. Doesn't happen, right? You put something in a barbecue, it, it, it gets cooked. And yet it says they're unbound and unharmed. And then he says this, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Where is Jesus? Right there. Where's Jesus? And I know you've heard me say this before, but this, it's just so beautiful. Jesus is in the fire. He's not standing safely outside going, I hope that goes okay for you in there. He's in it in the center, covering these three world-class failures with his incredible glory, protecting them, watching over. He's in the fire, in the heat, persevering, preserving, helping, being present. He's actually in there, saving their lives. Can I just tell you this? If you're in the fire today, just look around. He's there. That's his character. So the story ends with these three failures being thrown in the furnace because it's time to die, right? And then God shows up. Apparently it's time to live. And I love the detail that scripture puts in the story. The Bible says when they came out of the furnace, now can you imagine being Nebuchadnezzar, right? You send three in to die, then you see four, and then three come walking back out again. Hi. (laughs) Still not gonna bow to your stick. And this is the detail that scripture says. They came out of the furnace and you couldn't even smell smoke on them. When God delivers, he delivers completely. That's his character. Not even the hint of smoke. Here's number five, we gotta wrap up. Why do we call them world-class failures? Because they failed to commit the only failure that has eternal consequences. Verse 28, here's what happens. The Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, that's what he thought he saw, who sent his angel and rescued his servant. They trusted in him, defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Can that be said of us today? Could that be said of us? They would rather give up their own life than worship any God, than the God that they love and profess. I love this. They didn't commit the only failure that has eternal consequences. Because my friends, make no mistake, there is a failure that has eternal consequences. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. The message translation says this. That means everyone, everyone, who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Let me say that again. It means that everyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. That's a failure of eternal consequence. So that's my question. You're trying to live your life independent of God? You're trying to chase things that God doesn't want you to chase? Are you trying to make deals that God won't make? Or are you living fully and completely dependent on Him? Now, here's the issue, okay, as we get ready to wrap up. Here's the issue. Most of us take the failures of our life, and we like to slide them over into the eternal category because that's how bad they feel to us. But the truth is, the Bible says that every failure other than the failure to bow your knee to Jesus Christ is a failure that actually doesn't have eternal consequences. Only one decision has eternal consequence. So let me confess my inner nerd to you, okay? I like like Jeopardy. I do. I like Alex Trebek. I like the little punchy things where the people ring in. I like it. And I was a big fan. I was a big fan when Ken Jennings was on his role, the most winningest player ever in Jeopardy history. He was just answering questions right and left, winning unbelievable amounts of money. And then this was the question that stumped him. Most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white collar employees work only four months a year. And I'm sitting at home going, what is H&R Block? Everybody knows that, don't you? Okay, just the nerds know that. Okay, so anyway, he missed it. He missed it, shocked everybody. But can I tell you something? That failure, it doesn't have eternal consequences. Michael Jordan, supposedly the most prolific basketball player in history, lost more than 300 games. He missed over 9,000 shots in his career. 26 times he was entrusted with the ball with less than three seconds remaining, and he missed. And not one of those failures has an eternal consequence. Not one. Winston Churchill, one of the greatest leaders of our modern era, had to repeat a year of grade school. And that failure had no eternal consequence. By the way, I love his response when he was asked about failing a grade of school. He said this, I've never flunked anything in my life. I was just given a second opportunity to get it right. That's awesome. Abraham Lincoln was fired, went bankrupt. He proposed to a girl and she said no. That's not good, right? ran for public office six times and lost before he became the President of the United States. And not even those failures are eternal in consequence. Okay, if you don't hear it, please hear this. The only eternal failure that has eternal consequences is the failure to bow your knee to Almighty God and accept salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's that's the gospel, right? Because some of us are like, I'm not bowing my knee to God. This is what you need to know. Scripture also says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's my encouragement. Bow your knee now. Not to the God of this world. Not to chasing a standard that you're never going to live up to. Bow your knee to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and a bend to go, and become proudly a world-class failure. I know some of you are here, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, Grant, I got it. Nice play on words. You did your homework this week. Good for you. And some of you are grieving right now because it's like you don't understand. I, I, I really failed. I'm talking little failure. I didn't just miss a basketball shot. I mean, I failed. Failed. I failed my family. I failed myself. My life has been blown up. Some of you are thinking, "I no Old Testament story is going to make me feel any better about my failures because they may not be real to anybody else in the room, but they're very, very real to me. You know, I, uh, I'd love to talk to those people for just a second. If you're here and you feel like your failure defines you, this is what I would like to say. Welcome to Christ the King. You so fit in around here. You're our people, you know? Come and be a part of the family. We get it. We've been there. You know, I I just want to remind you, everybody has failures in their life. Go back through the list of Old Testament heroes we've been talking about, Noah. Noah saved the world in an ark, he built one. Two days after he parked the ark, he was flat out drunk and embarrassed himself and his family. David was the king of Israel. He killed Goliath and then became a peeping tom. And then went on to become a man after God's own heart. Moses had an anger problem. Yeah, he was the leader of Israel, but there are stories in Scripture of him getting so angry, he took a stick and tried to beat the snot out of a rock. Like, I mean, the guy had a problem. Everybody has failures. Every one of them has failures. But do you understand that God lives and loves to take your failure and redeem it? Do you know that God loves that when you bend your knee to Him, a part of what He wants to do is to take that worst failure, redeem it, and turn it into something beautiful so that you can touch somebody else's life with it? I actually put it in your outline. What if I've really failed? 2 Corinthians 7 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. If you're here today and you failed big time, grieve it, feel it. Don't run away from it or pretend that it didn't happen. Own the failure. And then bring it to God. In genuine confession. In genuine repentance. And allow Him to redeem that broken part of your story. And set you free. I'll close with this and then we're done. One statement. God loves world-class failures who refuse to bend their knee to the gods of this world. God also loves human failures because He's the God of the second chance. And between those two categories, world-class failures and human failures, I think that pretty much covers everybody in the room, including the guy with the microphone. Let's pray. Lord, I pray courage over my brothers and sisters this coming week because there will be moments when they have to stand alone. And Lord, whether they're standing alone in a philosophy classroom or standing alone at work or standing alone within their own family, I pray that they would stand tall because in not bending a knee, to the gods of this world and the idols that compete for our attention, they are choosing to bend a knee to the God of heaven. Father, thank you for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are so grateful that they stood tall. And Lord, we ask for the same courage. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who don't know Jesus' personal Lord and Savior. I pray that they would know that there is forgiveness for the past and hope for the future I pray that they would embrace that. Lord, I pray that they would not fail to make the decision that has an eternal consequence. I pray that they would bow their knee to you, willingly worship the God of all eternity, and offer their life as a living sacrifice to you. Lord, I pray that you would bind up the brokenhearted, heal the open wounded. And give strength to those who will choose to stand tall this week, regardless of the price. Thank you for being with us in the fire. We give you all worship and praise. As the God of our heart and all God's people said, amen, amen.